This morning, church, we're, we're going to begin a new journey together, a new series. I've called it Rooted, Digging Into God's Promises. And what we're going to be learning is the very specific promises that God makes to us and invites us to take an active stand on. The promises that God makes that he wants us to actively trust. That's what we're going to be exploring in this series. And it's important because God has made some very specific promises that are intended to strengthen, to empower you from the inside out, to make you what Scripture calls an overcomer in our world, to make you what Scripture calls a light and a testimony to who he is to our world. And so we're going to be exploring that in the next eight weeks together. And this morning, I want to begin by asking you a question. Do you remember the first time you went really fast in a car, like way too fast in a car? Do you remember that first experience of speed? And do you remember the fear that it brought and the alarm and the worry? I, I always remember a lunch hour when I was in high school, and, and I had a buddy who was a teammate on the soccer team. His name was Dean, and Dean was a car guy. You probably know a car guy or a car girl or two. All he ever thought about was working on cars, fixing cars, fixing up cars. And because he was a 16-year-old boy, making cars go fast or faster, Dean was all about that, and uh, I didn't know him super well, but we were getting to know each other on the team, and, and one day he says to me, hey, Greg, let's, you want to run downtown for lunch instead of going to the cafeteria? I said, Dean, I don't know if we can make it downtown and back before fifth period. He said, oh, we can, we can. <laughs> And so he took me out to the parking lot, and we got into his car, and it was some old Plymouth that he had souped up, and when I saw it, I knew it would probably go fast. I had no idea what was about to happen, though. In Eugene, Oregon, where I grew up, there's this street called Northwest Boulevard that kind of runs outside of town, but it runs between the part of town we lived in and downtown, and uh, kind of like a mini freeway, and Dean pulled out on that Northwest Boulevard, and he put the hammer down on his Plymouth, and I remember the feeling that I had been shot to the moon in a rocket, you know, going, oh my goodness, we're going so fast, the hood is bouncing, the car's bouncing. I would glance over and the speedometer says 120 miles an hour. Like, I'm going to die at lunch hour. And Dean must have seen the look on my face because he looked over and said, you're not worried, are you? Yeah, Dean, I'm terrified. I remember that feeling of incredible speed and thinking everything's out of control. Anything could, We could fly before we get to downtown. And we're, we're going that fast. And I remember Dean saying, hey, don't worry. And I remember thinking, oh, Dean, you inspire zero confidence in me <laughs> as we're going. He said, you're not scared, are you? Yes, I'm scared. And there was kind of this impulse in me that I wanted to grab the wheel and stomp the brake somehow. I, I didn't because I was too scared. But I share that story because the way I felt that day with Dean is the way a lot of people feel kind of in life. Everything's going too fast. And it's scary, and it feels like at any moment we could crash. And, and when we feel like that, and we hear God say, don't worry, we think to ourselves, well, that's easy for you to say. You're not feeling what I'm feeling in this moment. But, but church, here's the thing. When we hear that invitation to not worry... It's not Dean the car guy saying it. It's Jesus saying it to us. 
And there's a huge difference between those two things. You know, in reality, my fear and worry in that moment wasn't inspired by how fast we were going or by the circumstance it found myself in. It was inspired by my lack of confidence in Dean. <laughs> because on other occasions, I've been in cars, race cars, in fact, going that fast, and it was a thrill. Because I was sure of the one who was driving. God wants to talk to us about that a little bit this morning. You know, when you're moving really fast, it's easy to panic. It's easy to, to, to overreact, to try to gain control in such a way that causes a tragedy. Matter of fact, it was only a couple of years later that I was down in Southern California when I was in the military. Four of us were in a car, another hot rod that a friend of mine, Rudy, owned, and we were out on I-5 and going really, really fast, completely inappropriately. It was wrong. We shouldn't have been doing it. Two in the morning, we were doing over 120 miles an hour going down I-5. And you know, when you're going that fast, cars that are moving 60 or 70 look like they're parked. They look like they're not moving. And he's weaving in and out of traffic, and he came around a car, and it looked like, you know, there was nowhere to go, and Rudy panicked, and he overreacted, and he spun the wheel, and we hit the center divider of the I-5 median down in there so hard that his entire 69 Pontiac Firebird disintegrated from the firewall forward. Engine, chassis, everything gone. Wheels, axle. It is a miracle, I believe, to this day that the four of us walked away from that. Uh, I only had a broken collarbone, and mine was the most serious injury because I had that broken collarbone, I, I understand and empathize with Tyler's whining all this week about his broken collarbone. <laughs> but, um, you know, that overreaction happened because of fear and worry in that moment. Worry can cause panic. And so God wants us to be free from it. And here's the thing, church. As Jesus is going to reveal to us in a moment here, that kind of panic-inducing worry, that kind of fear, that kind of overstress, it comes from a very specific, easily identified place. And God wants to set us free from it. God wants to lift us above it. Today we begin a new series in which God invites us to, to trust his promises, certain specific promises, as the very most sure, solid, and certain things in our lives. He wants us to trust certain things he has said actively because they are more sure and certain than the ground we stand on, the chair we sit on. They are the most sure and certain things in our lives. This confidence that he's inviting us to isn't a leap in the dark. Faith is not a leap in the dark. It's a response to what God says. It's a believing in what God says. And so throughout this series, we're going to explore some very specific promises that God has given to you and I and invited us to actively trust on. And we're also going to touch on something else throughout the series. And that is the fact that there are things God has promised and there are things he has not promised. And that in fact... One of the devil's most used tools is to suggest to people that God has promised things he hasn't. Because then, when that promise isn't kept, who are we estranged from? 
Not only does God want us to know what he has promised us very specifically, he also wants us to be able to recognize what he hasn't promised us because the devil will use that to try to put a wedge between us and him. So, so let's begin that journey together this morning in Matthew chapter 6, beginning with verse 25. I'm going to read down through verse 34. Jesus is teaching, and he's going to talk about a very specific promise. Let's listen to him together and then break it down together. Matthew chapter 6, beginning with verse 25. Jesus is speaking, and he says, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food and the body more important than clothes? We'll explain that a little bit. And he says, look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they are? Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life? Why do you worry about clothes? See how the lilies of the field grow? They don't labor or spin, yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. And if that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So don't worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we wear? For the pagans, those who don't know God as he is, the pagans run after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows you need them. Here comes the promise. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. We could say amen to that with a whole heart. Let's, let's, let's notice some things here. First of all, church, understand that Jesus makes it clear that God our Father knows we need stuff. He knows that food and clothing and shelter are needful. He knows that we need these things. Verse 32, Jesus makes it clear. He says, your heavenly Father knows that you need we must put away the idea that God is some giant government administrator in the sky. Jesus taught the exact opposite. God is not someone who, who built the machine of the universe as some have imagined in the past and then set that machine in motion and walked away. Nothing could be further from the truth. Jesus says that God is a father who looks on us as his children. That's completely different than a government administrator in the sky. He sees us as his children. I invite you to circle that phrase, your father, your heavenly father knows what you need. He feels about us. He doesn't just think about us. Herman Melville said famously that the reason most men fear and avoid God is that they imagine him to be all brain like a watch when nothing could be further from the truth. Nobody feels more than he does, especially as a father. In fact, that's a key part of why Jesus teaches us to relate to him as a father, because of how he feels. And what Jesus is saying right here at the outset is he knows that we need stuff, and he feels our need. 
And he relates to us from that need. You know, I remember when our son Isaiah was a toddler and there was a season in life where he would spend half a day sometimes at kinder care. Uh, you're probably familiar with kinder care, a little child care type place. And sometimes he would spend half a day there during the week. Sometimes I would pick him up. Sometimes Rhonda would pick him up. And, and it just so happened that when I would get there about lunchtime to get him on certain days, uh, they would be in their nap time. And so it was so cute. You'd walk in, the lights would be off, the teachers are all tiptoeing, and there's all these mats spread out on the floor and all these little toddlers curled up on the mats, sleeping, taking a nap. And to this day, I don't let Isaiah live down the fact that for some reason, whenever he snuggled up on that mat, he stuck his rear end way up in the sky, and he would be all bent over with his hiney sticking up in the sky every time. But I would come in to get him, and they'd all be asleep and tiptoe in there and be quiet and... I would lay down next to him on the mat and then I would just touch his face and wake him up. And to this day, I can still see and feel what burst over his face when he woke up and saw dad there. Ah, dad, you know what I mean? Wow. He knew how I felt about him. He knew how his mom felt about him. He was thrilled. He didn't say, go away, I want to stay here. He was like, ah, you came, you're here for me. God wants us to know that's how he feels about us. That's how he feels about you. He knows you need stuff. He knows you have needs, and he relates to you from within them. Jesus contrasts that with the pagans, verse 32. Notice they run after all these things because they don't know how he feels, because they've never learned how he feels. They've never listened to Jesus to let him teach them how he feels. So they run after those things in a panic and fear and in worry. God says, don't be like that. Your heavenly father knows what you need. Understand that he sees you as his child. And then second, notice that when Jesus invites us to look at the birds of the air, like he does in verse 26, for an example of faith, notice that the birds aren't sitting around in lazy boys waiting for worms or seeds to fall out of the sky into their mouths. You see, when Jesus says, look at the birds of the air, he has two things in mind. One is that the Father provides for them, which he clearly does. But two, notice that the birds are constantly active seeking that provision. The birds, we would say, are constantly going to work, knowing that God will meet them in the going to work. Jesus' invitation to not worry is not a, an invitation to do nothing and to let God shower, uh, you know, provision on you. It's an invitation to enter into a partnership with him where he will meet you along the way. This is important to grasp. Church, work is a gift that God gives us. It is a blessing and it is ultimately a means of parenting us. Because it is through work that we learn to live in a trust relationship with him. The birds spend most of their day looking for seed and God meets them in the middle of it. The birds are not not working, they're not worrying. And that's the point that Jesus wants me and you to take home. The scripture is so clear about this, we don't have time to talk about it, uh, but just in passing, 1 Thessalonians 3.10 reminds us that if someone won't work, they shouldn't eat. Why? Because God wants to starve people? No, because it's in meeting him in that covenant promise that we are parented by him and raised by him, that we learn to trust him for even more significant things. Proverbs tells us to look at the ant and, and to take the ant's example. The ant doesn't worry, but the ant is busy. 
And, and so you understand the theme here. Jesus isn't advocating sitting around doing nothing as an act of faith, but he is inviting us to know that God will meet us in our work, in our labor. He will meet us in it and provide for us. You see, church, life is meant to be a partnership with him, a parenting partnership. And just as you don't want your child to have the experience of you just entitling them with all kinds of blessings apart from character, God seeks the same thing in our lives. And then, thirdly and finally, Jesus invites us to think about what matters most. Look at verse 25. He says, Is not life more important than food and the body more important than clothes? In other words, he calls us out for making the wrong things too important. And, and zero in with me for a second here, church. Here's where worry and fear is rooted. It's rooted in our choice to make the wrong things too important. Jesus is going to talk to us about that. He's going to say, hey, remember what matters most because worry and fear begin when you make things that should be less important or even unimportant too important. That's why he says, is not life more important than food and the body more important than clothes? I'm sure a lot of us can relate when I tell you that when I was in middle school, there were days when I was so awkward and unhappy with how I looked and, and the clothes that I wore and the way my hair was. There were days when I just didn't want to go to school. You get up in the morning, I don't want to go. I don't want to face everybody. Look at me. I'm such a geek. We felt like that. As we grow up and mature, we stop caring about that kind of stuff. We say to ourselves, yep, this is me. This is who I am. And we grow into another place. Well, what's really happening in that whole process is that we are learning to make what's most important, most important. And learning to let go of what's less important. When I was in middle school, getting ready for school was a half-hour experience in front of the mirror doing my hair. I confess that to you. It was the late 70s, early 80s. That's how we lived. And if the hair was wrong, oh, my goodness, now I just don't care, <laughs> you know. It's growing in my ears. It's growing in my nose, whatever, you know what I mean? I just don't care anymore. You know, a young lady in our church came to me uh, some time ago, and she said something I'll never forget and that I never let her forget. She said, Pastor Greg, I just appreciate you so much. You don't try to be cool or hip. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I received that. And I said, no, I don't mean it that way. But, you know, I actually, you know what she was saying? She was saying, I feel that pressure. And it's cool that you don't. And I like that, and I want to get there. That's what Jesus is talking about. When we stop making the wrong things too important. Can I ask you this morning, what, what is it you've made too important? Your lawn? People do. Your house? Your car? You know, your reputation? Your body? What is it that you've made too important? Jesus says that's where worry grows when we make the wrong things too important. And, 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 and if we let it, it can dominate our lives as we obsess over those things that aren't supposed to be important. 
Have you ever noticed that the more you pay attention to clothes, for example, the, the more ridiculous you become? I grabbed a few pictures of what we call high fashion just this week on the internet. Let me show you a few of those. The more you pay attention to clothes, here's where you end up. It's coming. Here it comes. It's coming. There it is. Come on. Here it is. It's coming in a second. I believe it's coming. Maybe it's not coming. Uh, yeah, the pictures of the slides. We got that. There we go. All right. Yep, yep, yep. There's one. Look at the next one. Just, let's just go through these pretty quick. Yeah, this is what people think clothes should be, right? Thousands of dollars for this stuff, this high fashion. How about that one? I was recommending that one for Pastor Josh. He wasn't into it, but how about this one? You know, it's terrific. And, and you can become a millionaire and be an NFL player, and then you end up dressing like this in the next one, you know? Look what happens when you make clothes too important. You become ridiculous. God doesn't want us to experience that. He wants us to remember what's most important. We think how we look is such a big deal. Can stop for a second before we go to the next slide. We think how we look is such a big deal. We carry it around all the time. Our worry about how we look. Jesus says, oh, that's why you worry. Because you've made the wrong things too important. I love the story of, of Gandhi when he was going to meet the king of England and he, he showed up dressed just in a loincloth and the king's servants said, well, you're not going to go meet the king at Buckingham Palace dressed like that, are you? And he said, oh, I'm not worried. I'm sure the king will be wearing enough clothes for both of us. And sure enough, he was. <laughs> but he wasn't making the wrong thing too important. We do, and that's where worry is rooted. Grasp this, church, because Jesus wants to set us free from it. Now, the last thing the Lord emphasizes in this little passage is the powerlessness of worry. Look what he says in verse 27. He says, who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life? Think about that. Worry accomplishes nothing. I love what Corey Tenboom said many years ago. She said, worry doesn't empty tomorrow of its sorrows. It empties today of its strength. How real that is, how profoundly true that is. In fact, the word worry is interesting. The Greek word is merimnao that Jesus used in this moment. It's a compound word meaning to divide the mind. To divide the mind. To put half of it in tomorrow or the day after and only half of it in today. That's the idea. Who thinks more people should go around with half a brain? Not me, right? And so Jesus says, don't. Don't worry about tomorrow. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Now, understand something, church. When Jesus says this, he doesn't, he's not saying don't plan or prepare. In the same way that the birds of the air don't worry but do work, Jesus isn't saying don't even think about tomorrow. In fact, over in Luke chapter 14, he's going to tell a little story about a guy who's building a tower. He says that guy needs to make sure he's got enough stuff to build the tower before he starts building it. Planning and preparing is not what the Lord is arguing against here. But what he is saying is don't worry about it. Make your plans, make your preparations, but put your trust in the promise that God has given us. How do we put all this together practically? The Lord does in verse 33. He says, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these other things will be given to you as well. In other words, put your active focus on pursuing two things, and they're very specific things. When Jesus says, seek first his kingdom, he's not saying, hope to someday go to heaven. No, no, no. He's talking about experiencing God's authority and leadership here and now. 
So to seek first his kingdom means to say, Jesus, I want you to be my master, my Lord. I want you to teach me what's most important, what's less important. I want you to teach me what I should be doing, what I shouldn't be doing. I want to be experiencing you as my king. That's what it means to enter his kingdom. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. That is intimacy with him, closeness with him. God, I want to get to know you. I want to get to know you closely. I want you to help me learn how to pray. I want you to open my spirit to the realities of worship. I want you to show me how to recognize you in my fellow human being. I want to know your righteousness. And as I know those things, as I actively seek those things, Jesus says, everything else will be taken care of. Everything else will be provided for you. That is a solemn promise that Jesus is inviting us to put our trust in today. Who's inviting you to put your trust in today. This is a big deal. Because church, understand, God is seeking to do much more than just achieve tasks in your life. He's seeking to parent you. And it is through this promise of provision that he parents you. It is through this promise that he teaches you to trust him. There's many, many stories in God's word that illustrate this. One of my favorite is found back in 1 Kings chapter 17. Let's take just a moment and remember it. Way back in 1 Kings chapter 17, beginning with verse 1, the Bible says this, Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishba and Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. Wicked king Ahab being confronted by a prophet who says God is going to execute judgment on you in this land in the next few years. It's not going to rain. The Bible says right after that, right after Elijah communicated that to Ahab, the word of the Lord came to him and said, Leave here, Elijah. Turn east and hide in the Kerit Ravine east of Jordan. And when you get there, you will drink from the brook, and I have ordered ravens to feed you there. Now, can I just say to you, if I'm Elijah in this moment, I'm thinking, uh, Lord, could we just have Chick-fil-A deliver or something? I mean, ravens feed me? That's pretty nasty. They're going to show up every day with food in their mouths, and I'm supposed to eat it? Lord, can we do this differently? But God says, no, 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 no. I want you to learn that I am your provider and this is the way I'm going to do it. And then it gets even more interesting because the scripture says that Elijah did that. He goes to this place and, and he's got this brook and he's able to drink from it and the ravens are feeding him. And then the Bible says, verse 7, sometime later the brook dried up. Imagine what Elijah's thinking in that moment. Uh, you told me to come here. Now the brook isn't working. The brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. So then the word of the Lord came to him and said, Go at once to Zarephath of Sidon and stay there. I've commanded a widow in that place to supply you with food. I imagine Elijah goes, that's awesome. Probably some widow. She's a doomsday prepper. She's got a bunker. She's got stuff in there. She's loaded with stuff. She's going to take care of me when I get there. It's going to be awesome. Thank you, God. And so he goes to the city. I can stop eating bird food. He goes to the city. And the scripture says when he came to the town gate, a widow was there. Yeah, this is awesome, gathering sticks. He called to her and asked, would you bring me a little water and, and a piece of bread, please? And then she says, I don't have any bread. All I have is a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. I'm just gathering a few sticks here to take home and make a meal for myself and my son so that we can eat it and die. 
And Elijah's thinking, wrong widow. So never mind. You know, I got to go find the right widow. But no, God says, this is the widow. And then they go home and, and she includes him in that meal. And then somehow that jar of oil just keeps dumping out oil. And somehow that flour just keeps reproducing. And they eat for months on it. And we're thinking, what a great story. I'm glad that's over. But it isn't. Because then if you follow the story along, the widow's son dies. God, why are we going here? Church, understand something. Throughout this journey, God's just not getting stuff done. He's teaching Elijah and this widow and anybody else who's watching to trust him. He's teaching them to take him at his word, not knowing how it's going to happen, but trusting his word more than our understanding of how it might happen. And at every point, he's meeting them. The story goes on and on like this. Each time God solves a problem, another one comes up. Why? Because again, in my life and in yours, God's not just getting stuff done. He's raising you. He's parenting you. He's teaching you who he is, and he's teaching you to trust him. You see, the promise of provision is really part of his parenting. So is the promise that Jesus gives in Matthew 6, Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. That's parenting. That's God's active personal parenting in your life. John Powell writes about how he would carry his aging mother up and down the stairs of their two-story home in Chicago late in her life, and she was elderly and infirm, and as he would carry her up that steep stairwell to the second floor, sometimes she would grab onto the banister and hold on for dear life. He says, I would say, Mom, you have to let go of the banister. I can't carry you up the stairs. But she wouldn't. She would cling fiercely to it, afraid of being dropped. And he said it would get to the point where I'd have to say, Mom, I'm going to count to three, and then I'm going to drop you. <laughs> let go of the banister and trust me. He said, I'd count one, two, and right before I said three, she'd let go. She'd trust me, and I'd be able to get her up a few more steps. Then she'd grab the banister again. She said, I, I'd have to do it all over again. Mom, I'm going to drop you. He said, what a blessed moment it was when she stopped grabbing the banister and trusting me to carry her up the stairs. In the same way God says to us, hey, I want to teach you to trust me. I want to teach you that I am your father. And that happens as you actively trust my promise. You know, for the next six weeks, church, we're, we're going to explore some of God's specific promises to us and how he wants us to actively trust him in them. But as we finish up today, in just our last five minutes together, let me remind you that there's another angle here when it comes to God's promises. There's another angle here, and that is this. There are things, church, that God has not promised us. And we need to be aware of those as well. Because see, the devil who we talked about last week when we began to explore spiritual warfare, one of the ways in which he fights against you is that he seeks to deceive you into thinking God has promised you something that he hasn't. Because then when that promise isn't fulfilled, who have you lost trust in? You see, Jesus experienced this firsthand. The Bible tells us in Matthew 4, he went into the desert to face the devil very early in his ministry. The devil came and he tempted him. First, he tempted him to live by his appetites. Then he tempted him with earthly power. The other temptation was very specific and applies to what we're talking about today. The Bible says 
the, the devil took Jesus to the highest point of the temple. Scholars tell us about 15 stories up in modern terms. And said, Jesus, throw yourself down from here. Because after all, in the Bible, it says he will command his angels concerning you. They'll lift you up in your hands. You won't strike your foot against a stone. Believe that God has promised that you will never suffer any injury so you can throw yourself off the temple. Jesus responded and said, it's also written, don't put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus said the Bible also says some things that moderate that promise. And the truth is God has not promised me perfect health and protection from all adversity. In fact, he's called me to ultimately go to a cross and die on it. See, Jesus knew the difference between what God had promised and what God hasn't promised. And throughout the series, God wants to grow you into that understanding as well. Listen, when it comes to the things God hasn't promised, the list is long in this life. As a matter of fact, on, on the last night of Jesus' ministry on earth, before he went to the cross, he pointedly said to his disciples, John chapter 16, verse 33, in this world you will have trouble. <laughs> but take heart because I've overcome this world. That's pretty blunt. He's not saying in this moment that the victorious Christian life will never experience struggle or difficulty. He's saying, in fact, you will. This world is going to be full of it. Later, he said to his disciples, earlier, he said to his disciples back in Luke chapter 21, describing the future, he said, guys, they will lay hands on you and persecute you. They'll deliver you to synagogues and prisons. You'll be betrayed by parents, brothers, relatives, and friends. They'll put some of you to death. All men will hate you because of me. Yay. But it's the truth. He hasn't promised us that we won't experience those things. In fact, he's told us that we will. So we've got to understand what God has promised and what he hasn't. And in fact, the devil knows that if he can trick people into thinking God's promised something he hasn't, they'll lack the faith to trust him for what he has. And God wants to set you and I free from that kind of worry. This goes deep, and we don't have time because we're almost done this morning, but over in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7, we see this lived out. The Bible says, During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Now stop and think, that for, think about that for a moment. Jesus prayed to God to save him from death. But God didn't save him from death. He saved him through it. Jesus didn't escape the cross. Jesus didn't escape the grave. He cried out to God, and God allowed him to go through it. Jesus understood the difference between what God has promised and what he hasn't, and he wants us to do that as well. We've got to pay attention to the difference between those two things so that we will have the courage to stand on the promises he has made. And he has promised you and I, and when we seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, all these other things will be added to us. Let me finish with a story this morning. Can I just take a second to share with you my greatest personal crisis of faith? Okay. Happened a long time ago. When we first started out in the ministry, some of you know, a couple of years in, I got stressed and so worried about everything that I had a heart attack, a stress-related heart attack, full-on, hospital, all nine yards. And in the wake of that, because of the health concerns. Uh, I stepped out of ministry and there was a 10-month period there where I worked for a car dealership and I was pretty broken, gang. I had 
devoted my whole life to this calling, gone to school, gone well down that road. And to make matters worse, we just had a brand new little son who was born and now all of a sudden I was going who knows where. And I found myself sitting one lunch hour in my car, uh, eating a Subway sandwich just outside the dealership and, and I was crying hard in my car. I was just broken. And I said to God, I said, God, how could this happen? You know, you promised me that if I worked hard and, and gave it my very best, you would make sure we succeeded. And as clear as a bell, as clearly as the Holy Spirit has ever spoken to me, here's what he said. No, I didn't. No, I didn't, he said. I said, well, wait, yes, you did. He said, Greg, where did I promise you that? I never promised you any such thing. Here's what I promised you, Greg, if you'll remember. He said, I promised you a cross and I promised you a resurrection. That's what I promised you. I promised you a cross and I promised you eternal life. I promised you a place in my house made just for you. I promised you an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. I promised you my love. I promised you my grace. I did not promise you that this wouldn't be very hard and very difficult. And I remember sitting there in my car going, oh my goodness, you're right. You didn't promise me that. You did promise me some things. That wasn't one of them. And I sat there and I thought to myself, hmm, a cross and eternal life. Not a bad deal. This is a car dealership after all, right? Not a bad deal. And can I just tell you, church, from that day to this, not once have I struggled in that way again. Because I know what my Father has promised and I know what He hasn't. He wants you to know the same thing. Would you bow your heads with me? Close your eyes. God, we thank you for your word. Jesus, we thank you for taking the time to talk to us about our worry. God, it must seem like such a small thing to you, but because you love us so much, you come and teach us about it. God, some of us have made the wrong things way too important. And as a consequence, we live in a prison of worry. Set us free from that, we pray. Send us out actively seeking your kingdom and your righteousness and knowing that you will provide through it. We pray that this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me, church? This is profoundly real Monday through Friday stuff. Maybe you think that Pastor Greg is leading MRCC with a firm master plan about everything that's going to happen for the next 20 years. Yeah, keep thinking that because I'm not. But I do know that one day at a time as we seek him, he meets us. And that's the point. That's the point. Now may the love of God the Father, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the fellowship of his Holy Spirit go with you throughout this week. Go with God. Tell someone you love him. Have a great afternoon.